This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. There's nothing more real to you than your subjective experience of reality. And there's nothing more opaque to science. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is an episode I've been looking forward to for a long time. Uh, it, I thought it was going to be a fun one, and it in no way disappointed. You probably have heard of Michael Pollan. He's the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma, as well as a ton of other New York Times bestsellers and fantastic books about food, about evolution, about science, about our relationship with nature. His new book is a bit of a departure and also somewhat not a departure. It's called How to Change Your Mind what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. If you have listened to this podcast, well, you know that I have an interest in psychedelics. Um, I think that the question of our consciousness is an important one. I think that the question of opening it up and recognizing that the way we perceive the world is very contingent. I think that is a worthwhile thing for human beings to do when they can. I think the ways in which we've treated these drugs, both legally and culturally, uh, are strange, which is not to say I think that everybody should just be running around dropping acid. But I think that the reevaluation that is going on right now is healthy and it's overdue. Pollan's book, I think, will prove to be an incredibly important anchor of that reevaluation. It is a rational exploration of psychonautry that is unlike anything I've read before. Um, it is also, whether or not you're interested in psychedelics at all, and you'll hear this for, for much of our conversation, it's a book that is fundamentally about the human mind. Um, and for a lot of our conversation, we are not discussing any of these drugs. We are discussing the human brain, how it works, what we perceive and don't perceive. Even if you have no interest in anything about LSD or psilocybin or any of the rest of it, I think you will find a lot here that will make you wonder about what it is you're perceiving when you perceive the world. It was certainly one of the most mind-expanding books I have read this year, and it was a real, real pleasure to get to speak to Paulin about it. As always, you can email me with feedback, guest ideas, ideas about how human beings perceive the world around them at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Uh, but without further ado, here is Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ezra. Very good to be here. I want to start not with the psychedelics, but with some of the ideas your book brings up around our consciousness. You write, and, and this was, I thought, a particularly mind-blowing passage, 
that normal waking consciousness feels perfectly transparent, and yet it is less a window on reality than the product of our imaginations. It is a controlled hallucination. How is the way we normally see the world a controlled hallucination? Yeah, um, well, it's a fascinating area. And if you, if you look at contemporary brain science, you find that the consensus at the moment, and, and let me preface all this by saying that they don't really know very much about consciousness. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really a, still a black box. They don't know how brains produce it, if brains produce it. Uh, and that science hasn't penetrated the experience, the subjective experience of reality. It has no way to measure it. It has no way. To, it, can, it can image it a little bit. But so keep that in mind that everything Can, can you say one more is, word on that? When you say science has not penetrated subjective experience of reality, I think I know what you're getting at there. But do you want to just sure. unspool that for a second? Because I think it's interesting. Let's say you want to study the links between uh, the brain, what's going on in the brain and what people are feeling, what they're experiencing. You have to ask them. You can't see what they're experiencing. There's nothing more real to you than your subjective experience of reality. And there's nothing more opaque to science uh, so far. Um, so, uh, what's called phenomenology, which is a fancy word for lived or felt experience, those brain scientists rely on your testimony, uh, because they can't figure out what you're thinking, feeling any other way. So all, all of which is just to say it's, it's remarkable, uh, how little we know. And it's one of the reasons psychedelics are so exciting is that they are an interesting tool to begin, just begin to penetrate that mystery. So the thinking now about how your mind works is not that you're a blank slate and your senses are admitting all this information about the world to, to construct a, a representation of it inside. It really is that the brain is a prediction machine and that you are constantly making guesses. So when you see a, a rectangle that's about six foot six high and has this little uh, dark thing right near the edge in the middle, you don't have to perceive a door. Your, your mind has got door as one of its many, many, you know, pre-recorded cassettes, and it plugs that in. And what your senses are essentially doing most of the time is correcting errors in the uh, imagined uh, models of reality that your brain is constantly providing. This is a very efficient system, so you don't have to go through a very complex operation every time you see something new. You basically have all this uh, memory uh, and models of what you're perceiving. And so, but those models are slightly different for all of us. And so what we see is an imagined reality that's corrected. You know, there's this very powerful error correction uh, software <laughs> And that's really important. It's updating it and making it uh, more precise and this f wonderful feedback loop with reality. But essentially what you're seeing is what you're predicting that you're seeing. So in that sense, it is an imagined reality, but it's an imagined reality with a very good error correction uh, machine. What I, I think is so interesting about this is, and, and one of the places where your book was very mind expanding is the word I'll use for it, is I think we have an idea that there is a, a sober perception of reality that, that we are all in, where we are absorbing reality as it is. And then you can add a chemical to your body and that can change, or you can have a mental disorder and that can change. But there is some baseline that we understand. And consensus how, reality, as we sometimes call it. Right. And one of the arguments it seemed to me you made in your book is that that 
changes, that consensus reality, that sort of what, what is an honest perception of reality varies more from person to person, but also more from species to species than mm -hmm. we are really able to fully understand. And that once you begin to, to really add that into your model, that, that what you are seeing is no more true in certain ways than what a dog or an octopus is seeing, even though what they are absorbing is very different, it, it raises, I think, some pretty profound questions about how much we actually understand about what's going on around us. Oh, without question. I mean, our perceptions of reality are very much dictated by our particular sensorium. I mean, the fact that we rely on these big five senses and that those senses have evolved to serve us and what we like to do, what we like to eat, the fact that we're upright, the fact that we walk on two legs, and that other animals organize their sensorium in a very different way to, to, and they emphasize different aspects of reality. So the world as it appears to a bee let's say, is radically different than the world as it appears to us. The bee can see in other parts of the spectrum. And so they're looking at stuff we can't see. And they're deciding what flower to, to go to based on a pattern uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, visual information that's invisible to us. At the same time, they have another sense we don't have as far as we know, which is they can pick up on electromagnetic radiation. Uh, in the hairs on their legs or on their uh, hindquarters. And this gives them very important information about the electrical charge coming out of a certain plant. And when a, when a blossom has been visited by a bee recently, it has a lower electromagnetic field or, you know, less intense one. And so it knows, don't bother going to that flower. It's already been picked. It's, its nectar has been taken. So imagine a world where we were picking up on the electromagnetic waves around us. It'd be pretty scary, actually, given how many waves <laughs> we've added to the environment <laughs> recently. Or an octopus, uh, which has kind of distributed its, its intelligence. You know, we concentrate our, our minds or our brains in this one organ, or not completely. We have neurons in other parts of our body, but mostly it's in our head. The octopus has spread it out over these eight arms, some of which can make their own decisions about certain things without consulting headquarters. And, you know, I was, I was really struck by something uh, one of my... A psychonaut sources said, and he said, you know, if you could actually, if we could switch consciousnesses, you and I, Ezra, reality would not appear transparent. It would be very different feeling. It wouldn't be like a hallucination different, but it would feel off in profound ways because your consciousness is based on a set of uh, models that are the product of your history, where you grew up, what the light was like, your size as an individual and no doubt your age. And um, so the models you are constantly projecting to understand your world might look different than mine. You would still recognize a door and we would agree that that was a door, but I think you'd feel like you were high. I think you would feel like you were tripping just because of the unfamiliarity about it, not the inaccuracy, the unfamiliarity of it. So we've been talking here about perception of external reality. How does a particular sensorium you have um, help you see whether or not that's a door? But then there's a question of the perception of your internal reality. How do the brain structures you have and the history you have help you perceive what is yourself and what isn't yourself? And, and there's a quote in the book by Matt Johnson, who's a psychologist mm -hmm. who's working on some of the psychedelic research that you report on, that I have been 
thinking about a lot. And so I wanted to read it to you and have you unspooled a little bit. Sure. He said, we're trapped in a story that sees ourselves as independent, isolated agents acting in the world. But that self is an illusion. It can be a useful illusion when you're trying to escape from a cheetah or do your taxes. But at the systems level, there is no truth to it. You can take any number of more accurate perspectives. There were a swarm of genes, there were vehicles for passing on DNA, there were social creatures unable to survive alone, there were organisms in an ecosystem. Wherever you look, the level of interconnectedness is truly amazing, but we insist on thinking of ourselves as individual agents. And to me, what's remarkable about these chemicals and, and this research is that you can take a very, very small amount of a molecule and all of a sudden your perception of where yourself begins and ends transforms completely. And the idea that it is that weak, that it is that thin a reed that separates mm -hmm. my understanding of where I begin and where other things end, that is a, that is a, a very mind-bending thing to sit with. <laughs> Yeah, I think, uh, I thought Matt's comment was one of the most profound uh, ways to put it. And one of the, the big issues in, or the big uh, takeaways from psychedelics is a kind of relativizing of your sense of self, um, which is so central to our identities. And of course, the Buddhists have been telling us for a very long time that the self is an illusion. Um, it's a projection. It's a creation of our minds. It doesn't have an independent reality. Again, it's nothing science can, can measure in any meaningful way, but that one of the things that psychedelics reliably do is uh, dissolve your sense of self to one degree or another. They either open up and make more permeable that boundary between uh, self and world, or they completely um, uh, dismantle it for a period of time, which is a can be a, a terrifying experience because we're very dependent on it. I mean, we have this basic, we identify with our egos. We assume that's us. And for me, one of the big, big surprises was that you don't necessarily have to identify with your ego, that there, there may be another ground on which to stand. And, and I found that kind of liberating and, and very exciting. But we are locked in these stories we tell ourselves. Um, you know, there's a part of the brain or a structure called the autobiographical self. And, uh, and if you think about it, uh, you know, how do you, how do you maintain a consistent sense of a self over time? Well, you need a sense of time, first of all. So you have to have your, your past, right? Your, your biography to this point. And then you have a set of objectives in the future, goals, uh, aspirations. And then you have all this stuff coming at you, your present experience, uh, you know, what you did today, how you spent your work day. And there is a, a part of your brain uh, or a network in your brain that is knitting those things together and constructing stories. I did this very interesting kind of neural feedback uh, experiment with a guy named Judd Brewer who studies the neurochemistry of, uh, of uh, meditation. And um, no psychedelics were involved, but he basically put this helmet on my head with 128 uh, electrodes measuring activity in a particular structure called the posterior cingulate cortex, which is involved in autobiographical memory. He would give me a list of adjectives, you know, like uh, courageous, cheap, fearful, proud. And this thing wouldn't light up at all. There was no activity in the posterior cingulate cortex as I was cognizing these words. And then he said, think about how these apply to you or don't apply to you. And I went through it, cheap, I guess I'm kind of cheap, you know, and I started like making a little story, which was essentially fitting that word into my sense of who I was. 
And that's where that takes place. And what an amazing idea. This is the place we construct the stories that links experience to our abiding sense of self, which is itself illusory. (laughs) Which implies then that if you had different brain structure, either because of how we had evolved or because of the society in which you grow up, you could have reasonably different senses of self. Um, For for other projects I've been doing, I've been reading a lot about um, tribal societies. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that comes through really clearly in, in that anthropology is how much more natural it was for people in these societies to see themselves as much more interconnected with the rest of the yes. plan, to, to see themselves as part of a lineage and with nature. And when I read that, I read it initially as culture. And when I read your book, it made me think, well, possibly culture is also, you know, we're neuroplastic. Culture is also leading to an emphasis of certain parts of our minds, a de-emphasis of other parts of our minds, so that this isn't just an ideology that this clan has. It is a way that they feel much more so than I do. I grew up in a very individualistic culture. I've been right. told forever to journal in the morning and, you know, to, to think about what I want to achieve in life. And so the parts of my brain that are there to reinforce my own sense of my own story are are very strong. And the parts of my brain that emphasize more interconnectedness might be weaker. And, and that, that might be a literally different way in which I I perceive the world. D- does that seem like a reasonable yeah. Oh, I, I think without without doubt. I mean, culture is not just outside us. Culture is inside us. I mean, our, you know, learning changes the brain, right? Uh, certain connections get lots of exercise and become quite strong. Other connections don't get lots of exercise and they, they're attenuated. And so there's no question that if you grow up in an individualistic or probably capitalistic society, your brain ends up in a different place than someone who grew up in a in a society that that you know felt its dependence on nature every day, uh, where the individual was not prized uh, but the collectivity was. Um, yeah, I think it, it it's a fundamentally different. I mean, the fact that you know all this focus on the ego and and psychedelics is is interesting because it's so relevant to our culture, but traditional cultures who use psychedelics, I don't I don't know that that's a big issue. Ego dissolution. Um, I think the ego is very much a, a product of our our Western capitalist society and and our and and the strength of our ego and also the disorders that can come with a strong ego, uh, such as uh, depression and addiction and anxiety and obsession. I'm, you know, my guess is that the incidence of these things differ uh, when you when you move cultures to one degree or another. And ego, you know, ego is a wonderful thing. Ego got my book written. Ego will get your book written. But it also can be a harmful thing and uh, can be very punishing, can keep us closed off to the other, can keep us closed off to our own strong feelings or our subconscious. You know, it's a defense, and defenses have their uses, but defenses also close you off. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Well, I want to make sure in this conversation I don't assume too much existing knowledge of, of psychedelics because not everybody mm-hmm. like me went to UC Santa Cruz. And um, so right. tell me about, and this might be a good bridge into, into some of the psychedelic research itself. Tell me about the relationship between ego and psychedelics. Well, what do we know about this? You know, one of the most interesting findings in this current generation of research, uh, which is, you know, a resumption of research that was going on in the 50s and into the 60s and then got kind of choked off by the, the backlash against psychedelics in the mid to late 60s. But one of the most interesting findings is when they began imaging the brains of people on psychedelics. And this work started at Imperial College in London, and a young neuroscientist named Robin Carhart Harris began doing fMRI and some other uh, imaging modalities to look at what happened in the brain when people took psychedelics. And something very interesting was discovered. I think the general assumption was that you'd see lots of extra activity in the brain of someone on psychedelics to, to correspond to all the fireworks people described, uh, hallucinations, synesthesia, all these kind of wild mental states. But to his surprise and and the field's surprise, he found a decrease in activity in a particular and very important brain network called the default mode network. It's a network that links parts of the cortex, which is the evolutionarily most recent part of the brain that has executive function and things like that, to deeper, older structures like the hippocampus and and, and centers of memory and, and emotion. It is a transit hub. Lots of signals have to pass through this network And it corresponds to uh, our sense of self in that operations having to do with the sense of self, such as reflection or uh, rumination, time travel, the ability to think about the future or the past, theory of mind, the ability to impute mental states to others, and the the autobiographical self that I was discussing earlier, all are involved in this network. And it's where our minds go when we're wandering, when we're daydreaming, when we're worrying and ruminating, or when we're filled with regret about the past. It all takes place there. It's not necessarily a very happy place to be. Uh, Dan Gilbert, the psychologist, wrote a a, a terrific uh, essay called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. And when the default mode network is the center of the show, you're not necessarily that happy. But it's useful for various things. And it, it seems to be where this sense of self is projected to us. So turn it off or diminish it, quiet its voice, and something very interesting happens. The volunteers will report a sense of complete ego dissolution. They lose their sense of having a self. And when that happens is when the fMRI shows the most precipitous drop in activity. So there we have a kind of neural correlate of the ego. Now, is it absolutely for sure what's going on? Well, fMRI is a proxy for brain activity. It's really measuring uh, energy use in the brain. We assume that's a proxy for activity, but it's it's a rough measure. But it does appear to be involved in the the creation of the sense of self and, and maintenance of the sense of self. So I think that was a really important breakthrough, and it helps explain what 
people have described about psychedelics for a very long uh, time, which is the fact that they're, they feel their ego either soften or absolutely uh, disappear. And that this can be a terrifying experience uh, for people who hold, try to hold on to their ego. Uh, it's like dying, and it's a lot like ego death. Uh, I mean, it is ego death. Uh, but for people who can let go, it can be incredibly ecstatic experience because you lose your sense of isolation, the sense you're locked in this shell of your ego, and you suddenly feel like you're merging uh, with the natural world, with the universe, with uh, the divinity, whatever it is. And that sense of merging can be blissful. And so it's one of the most, you know, marked features of psychedelic experience. I mean, Aldous Huxley talked about it in The Doors of Perception, and many, many people in their reports have experienced this. It's often called um, the mystical experience, and that's something that was closely studied by William James uh, more than a century ago. And if you look through the religious literature and poetry, you find many, many instances of that experience of the ego falling away, followed by emerging with a larger sense, you know, you're part of some, it's, it's Emerson on the common, you know, becoming a transparent eyeball with the forces of the universe passing through him. It's, it's, it's Whitman, you know, having, who clearly had some sort of mystical experience when he, when he wrote Leaves of Grass, at least the first draft. It's very common in, in literature. And I, did, I never understood it, frankly. I would read these guys and think, uh, this is like a literary conceit. But once you've had the experience, and I, I really didn't have it until I used psychedelics, you understand exactly what they're talking about. And the mystical experience is, uh, you know, has all these hallmarks that James listed. You know, it has this sense of merging or, or unity. It has a distorted sense of time. You, you feel like the present is, is uh, elongating and be eternal. Um, there is this noetic sense, which is, I think, one of the most interesting aspects. That was his term for this sense that the insight you're having, the visions you're having are not subjective. They're absolutely objective truth. This is revealed truth. And that can lead people down a weird path. But if you're healing someone, that can be very useful for them to be convinced that whatever insight they had has this concreteness, this authority, like no other insight they've ever had. And anyway, uh, uh, James goes through eight or so traits of the mystical experience, and it appears that you can induce this experience using psychedelics. You can get it other ways, though. People get it through meditation. People get it through certain kinds of breathing, yogic breathing exercises, um, people get it from fasting, from vision questing, sensory deprivation. There are many ways to get there. And the suggestion of the psychedelic research that's so exciting is we know where in the brain that happens and that there may be other ways to quiet the default mode network without drugs. This brings up one of, to me, the most interesting questions that, that you consider in your book, which is, so we can have these chemicals that can reasonably reliably induce a mystical experience, an experience that, that that fits William James's definition and that feels to people like they have glimpsed something spiritually different. And, and, and it will occasion, to some degree, can occasion permanent change in their life. It can take away their fear of death when they're terminal cancer patients. I mean, we'll talk about all of that. And yet the fact that you are occasioning this experience by consuming a tab of paper covered in LSD chemical or consuming a mushroom would seem 
to make it very non-mystical. It seemed to make it clearly materialistic. Okay, you've, <laughs> you've taken a chemical that quieted a part of your brain and now your ego feels smaller and, you know, you're, you're filtering less sensory information. And yet people knowing they have done that, knowing that is how they got the experience, nevertheless feel that something has happened that is spiritually profound, that has connected them to a deeper truth. You consider this tension in the book, but, but I'm curious to hear how you're thinking about it now. Um, because to me, I, I, yeah. I, this is a place where, where the answers feel very unsatisfying. Yeah, it's a tough one because it feels like cheating to us um, to use a chemical to have a spiritual experience. And that's interesting. That has to do with our moralizing about drugs, I guess. And it has to do with the dichotomy most of us feel between spirit and matter and that you're transcending matter when you move into a spiritual realm. Well, what if there's a material cause for a spiritual experience? It just seems wrong. And that's just probably a fault of our metaphysics and a fault of our moralism about drugs. I mean, because a natural mystical experience, let's say one caused by, you know, uh, two weeks of meditation or three days of fasting, no doubt there are chemical changes involved there. There are endogenous chemicals that are doing the same thing. Or even you're, maybe you're cutting off blood flow to the default mode network, and that's what's quieting it. So is that cheating too? We privilege the fact that we earn something by sheer dint of will versus taking a pill. And insight gained through meditation you know, seems more well-earned than uh, insight gained through, you know, pills and blotter papers. But I think we should step back and wonder, is that really rational? The fact is the line between matter and spirit is, you know, that's, a, that's one of our, that's our construct. That, that may not belong to the, uh, to the world. Um, so I don't know how much we should credit it. But I struggled with that because I am, I thought of myself as very much a philosophical materialist, that the laws of nature could explain everything. And they may, it may well be true, but there are laws we have yet to discover, and it may be more complicated than we think. But I had the same feeling about all the cancer patients I spoke to who had an experience that gave them some insight into the afterlife. How do we credit that? I tend not to think there is an afterlife, but why do I know more than they do? So we're really on kind of squishy ground here, I think. Uh, and I think we all you can do when you're on squishy ground, I think, is, is uh, you know, keep an open mind. For myself, my experiences did not uh, make me throw out my sense of, you know, materialism. Um, but it changed my understanding of spirituality. I saw a place for spirit in places I hadn't before. So, for example, I used to assume that spirituality and materialism were this, you know, opposed terms. But I realized the real opposite or antonym for um, spiritual is egotistical. And that when you see the world in the objectified way that the ego tends to see it, as that you're the only subject, right? Thinking subject, perceiving subject, everything else is an object, even people for a lot of, a lot of us. But certainly other species, nature, all that stuff is, is objective and you're subjective. I came out of it thinking that there's a lot more subjectivity in the world than we allow for and that everything around us has its own, you know, consciousness is, is, is not quite the right word for it, but point of view, agency, and, you know, that plants have consciousness. It's not our consciousness, but uh, in the sense of they are taking in information about their environment and responding to it in, in appropriate ways that are not necessarily instinctual. 
it kind of softened my sense. I, I mean, you could call it animism too, but I, I came out of it with a sense that there's, there's, there are more spirits out there than, than I had thought. So let me, I want to stay on the squishy ground for a minute because I, I think this sure. is a, an, an interesting, important space. And let me try to work my way through the other side of this argument. Because um, I think Great. it is about meditation too. And I remember a couple of years ago when they began showing that they could show in an fMRI uh, when people had a mystical experience, what was lighting up. I mm-hmm. think a place where people, the materialists have made hay of this is that the idea of a spiritual experience was probably an experience that had some bearing on an afterlife or a spiritual non-materialistic realm is that if there is going to be more than what we can perceive with our bodies, right? If there's going to be something for us after we have Mm -hmm. dissolved into dust, then it has to somehow exist outside of us, that it it, it can't be something that is lighting up the brain because one day we're not going to have a brain anymore. That's right. And yet some of these cancer patients and, and many other people who had many other kinds of mystical experiences induced all kinds of different ways have seen something there. And even when they know that what's happening, near-death experience is another great example. Even when they know what's happening is something is lighting up their brain, be that blotter paper, be it, you know, three weeks of meditation on a mountaintop or five days of fasting or whatever it might be. There is what you, what you and William James call this noetic quality, this quality that there has now been access to a kind of truth beyond normal materialistic understanding. And mm-hmm. And I don't think it's about cheating. I think it's about... Well, if it's in the brain, can it really be a spiritual experience or is it just an interesting experience? Is it just a a twist on our conceptual hardware? And like it's really interesting that you can change our sensory perception. But if you're if all you're doing is changing our sensory perception, can you really define that as spiritual? Can that ever be something that tells us anything about what will happen after we are gone or what is happening outside of our outside of our conceptual boundaries? That's a great question and a great way to, to phrase it. I mean, first, there's certain assumptions in your question that I, I tend to so share. Many. <laughs> but, yeah, but you should, but you, you know, you should, let's, let's state them. I mean, one is that consciousness is produced by brains. So things that happen mm-hmm. in our consciousness are taking place in our brains and are limited to our brains. Now, that's always struck me as the most parsimonious interpretation, that consciousness is a product of brains, that meat produces minds. It, but you should know it's like not everybody buys that. And some very serious people don't, including, you know, some physicists and philosophers. They think of consciousness as a field, uh, like the electromagnetic field that exists outside of us. And what our brains are are, are essentially tuners or receivers. And we hmm. t- and this is Henri Bergson, you know, this was his model of the mind, um, and that we tune in to different fields of consciousness. Uh, but they're out there. And that Consciousness is a property of the universe, like gravity or electricity or, uh, you know, any any of those other things that the world is made of. And information is another one. So we can't, we don't know enough to reject that idea out of hand. It doesn't seem plausible to me. Um, I remember when Bill Richards, one of the researchers who who believes this, who come to the, came to this understanding, he said, you know, if you want to Meet the blonde who who gave you know delivered the news on on your TV last night. You're not going to look in the TV. <laughs> That's not where she is. And uh, you know it's a nice metaphor, but I don't know how far you can take it. But I came to think of spiritual experience, and again, this is for me who 
stuck in my primitive materialist understanding of things as really being a function of connection and feeling connected to things outside me in a really profound way, whether it's other people, uh, whether it's nature, whether it's the universe. And that, that's what I meant when I say spirit is, is the opposite of ego, because it's ego that keeps us feeling unconnected or disconnected. And that when that barrier comes down is when we have a, a feeling that we describe as spiritual, a bond, uh, a deep connection. And uh, it's a very powerful thing wherever it's taking place. Does it need two parties? In other words, does the other party have to be connecting to you for you to connect to it? I don't know. But it's, uh, it, it certainly causes you to rethink a lot of your, your assumptions. And I would say that I haven't abandoned a pretty materialist understanding, but I have a more open mind than I did uh, to these other ideas when I uh, did this. Partly because I was really struck by, I mean, it sounds like you've done this reading, but you look at the study of consciousness and you realize how little we understand about it, that there's a lot of hand-waving and, uh, and guesswork going on, and that we're a long way from understanding the, the links between consciousness and brains. And that's very exciting. I mean, and, and there are people who think we will never understand that, that subjective experience is by its very nature, not something that we can subject to the kind of objective measurements uh, that science relies on. I don't know if that's true or not, but there are people who think it's at least several whole scientific paradigms away from being understood, and maybe it will never be. These are called mysterians uh, who, who think fundamentally we can't. These are questions that our brains can't answer. So anyway, you end up, you know, with with more negative capability, you know, that that ability to exist amid uncertainty, which to us journalists, of course, is endlessly frustrating because <laughs> we want answers. One of the things that has always struck me about this conversation uh, as being interesting is, well, maybe maybe where maybe I'm maybe one is thinking about it wrong. So I, I've never had an ego dissolution experience. My I I. I've had some psychedelic experiences when I was younger, but they were never high dose in that way. But I had some very weird disassociative experiences, which I found a little scary, by the way. I, I thought it was strange mm -hmm. that I was confused about which person in the room I was. And I thought it was strange that I was confused about the borders of my, of my existence. But one of the things that I had felt then and that I read in what some of the people you interviewed said was... Well, maybe the way in which it's a spiritual comfort, maybe the way in which the ego dissolution experiences change people is not so much by reframing what happens to them after they die, but reframing how important that question is at all. That the, the feeling of weakened boundaries, at least mm -hmm. at the time when I felt it and some of the things where I've been, you know, when I've read, because I've always been very interested in reading people's reports of these very, very high dose trips, that that, that one of the things it seems to leave people with is a feeling that, well, maybe the I just matters a little bit less. And that's when it, that's right. you have a sense that there's all this big thing, this big kind of unified field experience happening around you that you're just part of and not um, separate from, that the idea that you would dissolve back into it in a less I way, it's not about what happens to you after you die, just it's about you just being less a part of, a less important part of the picture. It's one of these things that it, it doesn't make a ton of sense to say, but it, it seems to be when I read what 
comes through. And it's a very non-individualistic way of um, of thinking about um, after-death experiences. It's much more, it's very Buddhist compared to, compared to a lot of Western religion. But it seems to be very common and not something that we always have great language for talking about. I, I think you've hit on it. Um, I, I think it has to, I put it slightly different differently, that the extinction of the self is painful to the, to the extent that you see the self as contained by your skin. Um, and that to the extent you can define the self in broader terms to encompass your family, your offspring, your community, the natural world, your nation, um, some larger entity that you feel so strongly identified with that the extinction of this one node in that larger entity is, is not as big a deal. I think that people at other times where they've lived in, in a, a more kind of communitarian society, I wouldn't be surprised if they had an easier time dying for that reason. Um, now, there are other reasons too, faith and things like that. But even then, what is faith but this sense that you're part of something larger? And, and so, you know, there's a quote in the book from Bertram Russell, uh, who, who somebody asked him, you know, how can we die? How can we die well? And he said that basically the, the goal should be as you get older to broaden the, I mean, he describes the self as a, as a, as a, as a stream and then a river and it gets wider and wider and wider and takes on more and more until it just kind of empties very peacefully into the ocean. And the basic idea is the problem is how you define yourself. If you define yourself narrowly in terms of the ego, death is unimaginable and um, incredibly painful. If you can define yourself on a broader canvas, it becomes that much less painful. Uh, and I think that that's a very reasonable point of view. And I think that what's happening to the to the cancer patients I interviewed is is often that that it wasn't that they saw an afterlife. You know, one this one woman described herself: I died and I went underground and I was taken up by the trees, uh, and it was okay. I wasn't me, but I was I was still in nature. Now. You know, people going, dying and being returned to the earth and taken up by trees. Guess what? That really happens. <laughs> That's not mystical. And to the extent that she had this sense of identification with the soil and, and the natural world, it was not a painful thing to contemplate. We've spoken glancingly now a couple of times about the cancer study. So, so do you want to describe it a bit, the, the study of terminally ill patients given high-dose psychedelics to, to change their views on the end of life? Sure. Yeah, this is one of the, I think, the most interesting studies that have been done in this renaissance of psychedelic research, and, and in a way, a surprising one. The uh, researchers, I think partly because they were looking for a very sympathetic population to work with, and a population we, that the pharmacopoeia had very little to offer, decided that they would give a psilocybin session. And it's very important to point out that people aren't just handing you a pill and sending you on your way. It's not a prescription you pick up at CVS, right? You're in this guided experience. You're in this very comfortable room. doesn't feel like a hospital suite. You're stretched out on a couch. You have headphones on, listening to very carefully curated playlist, and you're wearing eye shades, both of which encourage you to go inside rather than, you know, trying to respond to your environment uh, and be undistracted by um, other senses. Um, and these were people who had either a terminal a diagnosis and were going to die in the next few months or years, or people who had such a serious diagnosis that the issue of 
recurrence was essentially crippling them with anxiety. I mean, these are people struggling with depression and anxiety and fear. And, you know, for those people, we don't have a lot to offer them. Uh, we have, uh, at the very end of life, we have morphine, which essentially dulls the experience. And then before that, maybe we'd give someone an antidepressant, which doesn't actually do very much for people who are dealing with their mortality. And this work had been done also in the uh, late 50s and early 60s with success. So there was a model uh, for this. And it was sometimes called therapy by self-transcendence. I think it's a really interesting phrase that Sidney Cohen, who was one of the early uh, psychedelic researchers in the 50s and 60s used. So when I heard about this, I thought it was kind of nutty. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but if I were in that situation, the idea of surrendering control to that extent would be really scary. And have, it's not when I'd want to have a psychedelic experience. But these people were pretty desperate and they had experiences that in about 80% of the cases, they had a placebo trip and then the real trip, um, led to statistically significant decreases in standard measurements of depression and anxiety that lasted for at least six months. And, uh, and in fact, a lot longer than that. The ones who had the best result were people who had had a mystical experience as measured by the Panky Richards mystical experience scale. You know, the shrinks have scales for everything. And it was that experience, not the drug by itself. And I think that's a very interesting point of distinction with this kind of therapy. You're really prescribing an experience, not simply a molecule. But people who had that experience uh, substantially lost their fear of death, in some cases completely. And this struck me as so implausible that, in a way, that's kind of what got me to uh, dig into this, this work and, and want to try the drugs themselves, because I, I really hadn't had much experience at all myself. And I spoke to a lot of these cancer patients, and uh, they were fascinating conversations. And they were able to talk about death in a way very few people in our, in our culture are able to. I mean, very frankly, very objectively, very with a lot of equanimity. And um, they had seen something that made it easier. And in some cases, it was a sense of connection with a larger entity, uh, whether it was a divinity, although a lot of them were stone-cold atheists. Although even some of the atheists said things like, I was bathed in God's love. And I would say, but didn't you tell me you were an atheist? And she would say, well, it's the only word big enough for what I felt. It's very sweet. But she said, I'm still an atheist. But it was this sense of a larger uh, collectivity uh, or entity that they were part of that made the death of the individual uh, lose some of its sting or all of its sting for some of them. So one of the things that is so interesting in this and, and that your book drew out for me in a way that I had not seen before is the idea that you're prescribing an experience. So there have been studies of psychedelics as a treatment for terminal terminal terror and terminally ill, for depression, for addiction, for, for a number of things now. And it seems that the treatment can, it, there is suggestive evidence that the treatment can be quite powerful, but that what happened at another point in the research is that they began trying to look at it the way you look at a normal medicine and just put someone in a room and have a control group and give them some acid. Yeah. And it didn't work because there was this tremendous suggestibility. And you quote um, a, a therapist who is doing LSD-assisted therapy in mid-20th century America, saying that 
Under LSD, the fondest theories of the therapist are confirmed by the patient, that, that there's this tremendous yeah. suggestibility. But on the other hand, if the therapist then gives the patient an explanation for what's going wrong and how to fix it, that that suggestibility can nevertheless lead to a lot of healing. And uh, it is such a different way of thinking about medicine and how to prescribe it and how to treat someone that it it seems like no surprise that the medical community has had a lot of friction knowing even how to study it. Well, you know, because you're talking about a kind of placebo effect, or uh, as as uh, one researcher said, a placebo on boosters, on rocket boosters. Um, well, it reads like hypnosis. Yeah, in some ways, or it's shamanism, really. I mean, if you think about it, and we and doctors are very uncomfortable with with thinking of themselves as being shamanic, but of course they are. Uh, we we impute, you know, we impute all these uh, all this authority to them and expertise, and that they can heal us. And when they give us placebos, even when they tell us it's a placebo, very often it works. Placebo surgery works. I mean, it's it's the damnedest thing. It's it's something about the mind and its ability to heal itself given the right prompts. So it is a really interesting phenomenon of this work, and it makes it obviously harder to study it. But that the vocabulary in which people understand their illness and their and their healing is very much shaped by the expectations that they go into it with, which are in turn shaped by the you know the philosophical orientation of the uh, of the therapist just to give you one example in the american research the mystical experience is reported commonly and appears to be the important therapeutic agent um in England, though, when I talked to the researchers at Imperial College, by the way, a, a, a less religious culture, right, England, they say, we don't see a lot of uh, mystical experience. I thought that was huh. really curious. So the people in America may be priming it in various ways, you know, these, these children of William James. What they do say in England, though, and I think it might be the same thing with a different label on it, is they talk about ego dissolution. And the people who have this experience of ego dissolution are the ones that get the best effect. I don't know that there's a difference between ego dissolution and mystical experience, except as a matter of interpretation. In other words, the same kind of merging um, would happen with ego dissolution as happens with a mystical experience. And also, you could you could you could make an argument that the noetic quality is the result of losing this sense of a subject that can see things as relative or a matter of opinion, and and suddenly everything feels objective. So I, I think I could make a case and go through all eight qualities of the mystical experience and show how it could be interpreted psychodynamically in terms of ego dissolution. I haven't done that exercise, but my guess is we're t we're, these, are, these are different labels for the same phenomena. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So there's something here that, even if you take psychedelics out of it for a minute, strikes me as raising a profound set of questions about how we think about medicine. And so just think here about the placebo effect, which I know you've done a lot of work on this, and and, and at Vox, my colleague Brian Resnick has done great pieces on this. Mm-hmm. In the places where it is powerful, which tend to be uh, conditions that have some psychosomatic dimension to them, it is very powerful. But we don't know how to use it because we, we are very caught on the idea that a medication to be a real medication, a treatment to be a real treatment, it needs to work in some objective way as opposed to working in a subjective way. It needs to work when compared to a nothing (laughs) as opposed to just working for the person. And I, I think both the placebo research and the psychedelic research does a lot to call that into question, whether or not we need more ways to study whether and what works for people as opposed to works in some abstract. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And, and it's I uncomfortable that, to talk about. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's and, and you're, because you're talking about the kind of materialist frame in which medicine is, has been conducted, right. right? And that we've, and, and medicine has tried very hard to get alchemy and mysticism out of its, out of its purview. And, and here it comes back in. And I think that's very threatening to some people. But there's been so much interesting work going on about the links between the mind and the body and and the extent to which, you know, our mentality affects our physical health. Inflammation has a, you know, is a is a physical phenomenon with a strongly tied to stress. And that can affect our whole body. And I I think, you know, we're moving toward breaking down this simplistic mind-body a duality. And, and this work is taking us further in that direction. One of the most stunning stories I heard, which I actually did not include in the book for various reasons, uh, was of a woman who was dying of an autoimmune disease, a horrible disease. I forget the name of it right now, but it, it basically turns all your cartilage into bone. So you gradually lose your, your flexibility, your joints, and you're eventually bedridden. She was completely bedridden. This is a woman who'd been a kind of a junior administrator at Harvard. And um, I heard about her from a, a psychedelic uh, researcher. And, uh, and she was, you know, 75% of people die from, who get this disease. And she was bedridden. And I'd heard about ayahuasca, which is this, you know, now very popular Amazonian psychedelic uh, plant medicine. Um, which contains DMT, which is a, a powerful psychedelic compound, and other stuff. And um, she wanted to go to Peru to have an experience because she'd been told this might be a last-ditch thing that could help her. Uh, she couldn't travel, though. She was bedridden. So the people in Peru did her the favor of sending her uh, several doses of ayahuasca. And she took them with her caregiver alone in her bed in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And she had a, uh, an overwhelming uh, and terrifying experience where she essentially relived a rape uh, from her stepfather. She was adopted to this family in Kentucky. And, uh, and she didn't realize, but when she was seven, her father had raped her repeatedly. And she hadn't been in touch with this. 
And this brought the trauma to the, her, to the surface. And uh, within several weeks, her uh, symptoms began to recede. And the best interpretation that anyone could come up with was that uh, this particular autoimmune disease, I mean, think of the word autoimmune, is the bo- was the body attacking the body. And that one of the things that happens in cases of trauma sometimes is we punish ourselves or our bodies. We allow our bodies to punish ourselves. And that her autoimmune disease may have been the result of punishing herself for for this thing that she blamed herself for. And when she had the experience and kind of worked it through, um, she got better. And now she walks. um, And now she's, you know, training to become a shaman, by the way. Um, So I didn't know what to do with that. Um, You know, the first question I said is, what did your doctors think (laughs) when you got better? And she said, I wrote them and told them, but only one of them ever wrote back. They didn't want to hear about it. And I told the story to Andrew Weil. I was interviewing him for the book. And he said, oh, yeah, of course. They would never write back. That was such a challenge to their worldview um, that they couldn't deal with it. They couldn't process it. So, you know, I hadn't done the due diligence to prove out every aspect of her story and so therefore did not include it in the book. I know someone else who's writing about it, so hopefully the story will get told. Um, But... You know, that autoimmune disease, allergy, I mean, all these things, you know, that that do have a a mental component. And I I say that not to blame people for who have these things, but that it's it's just much more complicated than we know. Well, you're making me think of uh, a piece that I think is probably one of the most remarkable pieces of journalism I've read in the last year by Rachel Aviv in The New Yorker. And for those who want to find it, I'll put it in show notes. It's called The Trauma of Facing Deportation. And it's about how in Sweden— there are hundreds of refugee children who, when their families were facing deportation, began falling into an unconscious, almost comatose state. And they had no idea what to do with them. I mean, they, they couldn't move them. There was no treatment that would work. There was nothing that was physically wrong with them, but they stopped moving. They lost their muscle time. I mean, they, in a way that you could not just be faking it. It, it was beyond what, mm-hmm. it was beyond what you could will yourself to do. But the trigger was psychological. The fix was also psychological. If they began to hear around them and realize their family was staying. And you read this piece and it seems completely impossible. But she goes through a list of, in different cultures at different times, really, really traumatic diseases, afflictions. I don't exactly know what you want to call it, that are clearly triggered by a psychological catalyst. And mm-hmm. there's something here, and, and and we don't we don't understand it, and we don't quite know what to do with it. But it makes sense that if you have a lot of ailments that are coming from from a psychological space, that you're going to need treatments that are similarly subjective to speak to them. Without question, and uh, and and we're going to have to be comfortable muddying this line between uh, psychotherapy and medicine in a way to deal with these kind of questions um, because it's these, you know, these neat divisions are um, products of our culture. We've, we've invented them uh, for one reason or another. They're not necessarily right. I remember when I was talking to uh, Tom Insel, who was a former head of the National Institute of Mental Health, and I was saying, I was a little skeptical that how can it be that this one treatment, psychedelic therapy, should help with so many different things like uh, addiction, depression, uh, obsession, anxiety? And he said, well, how do you know they're separate things? That's that's an artifact of the DSM. 
the diagnostic and statistic, you know, manual of, of diseases. And that's an artifact of the insurance industry that needs a different code for everything. But in fact, depression and addiction are very closely related and that um, we draw a lot of artificial lines. And, and the most artificial, I think, is between the, the mind and the body. And uh, these, these things are, are intricately related and in ways we're only just beginning to understand. Um, and one of the things I kept feeling about this topic, and, and really, I, I mean, I'm glad you started where you did with this interview, because I really see this book as an inquiry into the mind using psychedelics as the tool or the window, uh, which is, I really think is its value. It's really early days and that we know so much less about the mind and the brain than, than we think we do. And that there are really wonders yet to be discovered. And, and treatments. I mean, one of the reasons I think this work is actually important, and I recognize how you can listen to this and, and think that it can all sound a little trivial, right? A bunch of people who <laughs> are fascinated by psychedelics and just want to talk about it more or get more opportunities to study it or, or, or try it. But we, ha we are much worse than people realize. And I, and I know this is something you've said as well, at treating mental health problems. We have their epidemic throughout society, and most of the treatments we have are, are quite bad. They have very, very low success rates for addiction, for chronic anxiety, for serious depression. depression. And we're trying, and we, you know, hand people SSRIs, and we hand them benzos, and, and, and we have talk therapy. But when you really look at the evidence, it isn't that these things don't do anything, but they, they don't do enough. And the idea that we have a class of compounds, which if used in conjunction with guidance and therapy and experience and set and setting and all the other things could have real impact here. I, it, it is something that I don't think we take seriously enough in the same way that just in general in society, we don't take mental health issues seriously enough. We are so much more afraid of the possible misuse of psilocybin um, and when I think we need to be a lot more afraid of the crisis levels of mental health um, issues that we see all around us and that we, I think, tell ourselves we have good answers to. But if you've had family or you yourself have been have been in this um, space, you know, we don't. We're nowhere. Um, you know, if you compare mental health treatment to any other branch of medicine, uh, you know, whether it's infectious disease, cardiology, oncology, we've achieved very, very little in the last 50 years. Um, we have not, uh, and, and the problem gets worse and worse. I mean, I, one of the things that really struck me when I began this research, and I think you're putting it in exactly the right context, is that uh, I thought that the psychiatric establishment would be very skeptical of this work and very kind of uh, uh, discouraging. And, and I, I, an editor asked me to go find somebody who thought all this was bullshit. And I started calling around and, and uh, I was really surprised at what I heard. And uh, there is a general understanding in the psychiatric establishment that there really hasn't been much innovation since the early 90s, which is when um, the SSRIs are introduced. Um, we're really, and their effectiveness is in doubt and fading and uh, they have you know side effects people really don't like living with. They have to take a pill every day of their lives. So that we're kind of in a desperate place with mental health care. And along comes this uh, treatment, which sounds radical and is kind of swathed in all this uh, moralism of the drug war and the, and, the, and the backlash from the 60s and Timothy Leary. It, it has all this baggage. Nevertheless, uh, 
based on these early trials, looks like might really be able to make a contribution. Mental health care is broken, and here is some new thinking. And I think we'd be foolish to not push through, at least, to do all the research, the phase three research, and and see what it has to offer us. Um, It's a very different paradigm in many levels. I mean, one is it's a single experience. It's not a, it's not a drug you take every day. So it's much less pharmacology, actually, than other things we're doing. Um, it's non-addictive. Uh, it's relatively safe when in a controlled environment, although there, there are psychological risks without doubt. Um, and it has the potential to make lasting changes in people who are really suffering. Um, so I think it would be, it would be a shame not to, to see this through. And if I advocate for anything, it really is just let's do this research. Um, And along the way, we're going to learn some very interesting things about how the brain works and how it fails to work uh, that will will help all of us. Because, you know, we all struggle with these problems. We may may not be pathological or we may not be debilitated, but all of us struggle with, with depression. All of us struggle with anxiety. All of us struggle with addictive behaviors of one kind or another. And there is... um, here is this tool that, um, you know, at least deserves a, a very close look. This is a good transition to all of us. We've been talking here primarily within the frame of those who can use these as treatments for recognized ailments. But something you talk a lot about in the book is using them for the betterment of well people. And I found this incredibly interesting, and, and it helped me actually reframe some things that have been happening in my own life. But you discuss the idea that an ailment we all struggle with as we get older and as we get more into our habits is an excessive amount of order in the mind. And I'd love Mm. to have you talk a little bit about the idea of high entropy mental states and low entropy mental states. This this thinking, this kind of framework comes from a a, a brilliant neuroscientist at Imperial College, young young guy named uh, Robin Carhart Harris. And he wrote, and I encourage people who are interested to to download this uh, study, which is not too hard to find online, called The Entropic Brain. And he encourages us to see, and he's not the only one, but to see mental activity on a spectrum ranging from uh, high entropy states, which might include things like magical thinking and the consciousness of children, very disordered thinking, and low entropy states, which is kind of this locked in, uh, you know, coma at the far end. But um, obsession, addiction, um, all of which are represent a, a brain that's got too much order in it, doesn't have enough flexibility. And that the brain, when it's functioning well, is at this point of uh, criticality, to use a term from information theory, um, which has just enough entropy, just enough order to be healthy. The various forms of mental illness that seem to respond to psychedelic are all on the too much order side. Things like depression, where you're locked into a story about yourself that you can't escape. Obsession, where you just run these loops in your head. I mean, all of these involve ruminative loops. Addiction, that you can't see a way to live without this substance or this activity. And that those are minds that he feels need a little more entropy. They need the kind of uh, noise that you can inject into a system with with a disruptive chemical like psychedelics. And it also points to the fact that people on the other end of the spectrum whose minds are disordered, and there he would include schizophrenia and young children and, um, uh, you know, personality disorder, 
that they're not going to benefit very much from psychedelics, probably, because they need more order in their mind. So we need an anti-psychedelic for them, I guess. Um, and it's a very, uh, when you read this piece, it's pretty dense, but it gives you a very interesting framework to think about your mind. Uh, and to what extent is your mind you know, stuck? Uh, to what extent do you have these deep grooves that you can't get out of uh, when you're confronting a creative problem or let's say a, uh, an issue with your child or your spouse? Do you keep falling into the same uh, patterns uh, that might be destructive or your own addictive behavior? Um, you know, whether it's looking at Twitter or drinking or whatever it is. Um, we all struggle with, uh, you know, these grooves of thought, with habits of thought and behavior that we'd like to escape. And the suggestion here is that what's missing is a little bit of entropy. Um, there's a beautiful, someone in his lab had the most beautiful metaphor for this, which is that, you know, as we get older, we're like, uh, people on, you know, going down a hill on, on sleds. And, you know, when we first start out, we can go anywhere we want. We can make a path wherever we want. But over time, these deep grooves form. And those grooves are kind of the mental algorithms you use to get through the day and get your work done and, you know, deal with your kids or whatever it is. And after a while, you can't get out of those. Those grooves are so deep that wherever you start down the hill, you're going to find yourself back in those paths. What the psychedelic does, he argues, is fill it in with fresh snow. So you, once again, you're going to have a little more freedom and you can avoid that rut. And I thought that was a, you know, a nice metaphor for what happens. I think that these drugs do kind of reboot the brain. Um, Matt Johnson, who we quoted earlier, called it a biological control-alt-delete key. It's a chance when you've got all those bugs in the system from long use uh, that you can unplug it and plug it back in. And, and maybe the patterns will be different when you plug it back in. And, um, and so that's, you know, we're using metaphors here because we don't totally understand the actual mechanisms involved, but they're, they're powerful metaphors. It, it struck me that, and I'm sure I'm not the first to, to, to make this analogy, but that this idea makes a lot of sense if you just replace the word psychedelic with travel. Um, as, <laughs> as people get older, you, you hear them talk about the, the the need for travel, that after a life, you know, working one job, living in one place or working, you know, in one industry and living in one place, there's a real desire to begin to jolt yourself out of those patterns, to see things from a different perspective, to to have some disorder. I'm I'm experiencing myself a very small version of this. We were in the somewhat unusual situation where I'm speaking to you from Berkeley, where you work, and you're speaking to me from Fox Media, where I work, but I'm out here and you're, you're there. And I'm here it's on a book leave. And for, this is the first time in 15 years I've not been doing daily news work. And it's been amazing to see the change in my mental habits. Um, it's been amazing to see how differently I'm thinking, how deep the grooves of the way I kept up on the news were and how much that narrowed what I had space to consider. I have felt very different out here. And that's a very small example. And Lucky me, I get to take a book leave. The point is not that the point is not that it comes easy or, or that everybody or that it's not a, a privilege. But I'm ju I'm just in California. I'm from here, so it, I wouldn't have thought it'd be as big a mental difference as it is. But the idea that as you get older and as you've been in one place doing one thing for longer periods of time, that you would want to consciously seek some kind of disordering of your mental habits, it makes a lot more sense to me now than it did. And yeah, the idea that psychedelics are an and approach to it seems reasonable. Travel is a great analogy. We've all had that experience that uh, that these routines of behavior of, of, of what you do in the morning when you get up and, and how you organize your day and your thoughts. Uh, 
uh, suddenly are, are, don't work anymore. You need new algorithms. You know, it's part of our efficiency as a species. We learn how to do something and we do it over and over and over again because it works. It gets the job done. Uh, it gets us to work in the morning. It gets us through the workday. But the fact is that those grooves get deep and you can't see over them. And, um, and to uh, get out of them, whatever it takes is, is salutary. I mean, it has a, a big effect. And, you know, a lot of people can't afford to travel. A lot of people can't afford to get out of their routine. And the fact that you might be able to simulate that process, and I, simulate is not the right word, with a therapeutic session, with a psychedelic session that would have the same effect in the course of six hours that for the rest of us might take weeks of travel and, and being in an unfamiliar situation is, uh, yeah, it's an exciting possibility. But um, one of the things that drew me to this is I was approaching 60 and, and really feeling like I had these grooves. Uh, I had these mental algorithms and they were, they were pretty effective. I got things done. I, you know, I had, had a happy life, but I also felt like they were closing me off from wonder, from novelty, from uh, experience. Uh, and they tend to do that. They're, you know, they're, they're running the algorithm rather than taking in new information. You know, it's kind of like predictive coding on, a, on the scale of life, right? You're predicting what's going to happen and it happens. And, uh, but how nice to be surprised time and again. And, and that's one of the things that, that happens with these experiences, that you are surprised by you know, the, the wonders of nature, the wonders of existence, the, the fact that we're here. I mean, all these things we take, we take for granted uh, suddenly become uh, something you're very grateful for. I'd like to discuss uh, on that, the idea of your book as, as an artifact. Something that you're doing is tracking a moment of psychedelic, both research and use resurgence that there was a period in the 60s and the 70s where these came onto the scene, at least in mainstream American culture, in a very big way. Um, they were treated, you, you write, as a credible threat to the social order. Richard Nixon called Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America. And Isn't something that, that I've been thinking about reading these books, sort of tracking the way people are talking about it, the stories of Steve Jobs using LSD in Walter Isaacson's book. I know you've been mm -hmm. on Tim Ferriss's show. There's a lot of Silicon Valley discussion of psychedelics and microdosing. Something that seems really different to me right now is that far from the Timothy Leary, tune in, turn on, drop out, we're not going to fight in your wars or work for your corporations. There's now a discourse around these as productivity hacking life enhancement, you know, everything from treatment for depression and anxiety and addiction, all the way to using microdosing to enhance creativity and create the next iPhone. And, and I wonder, I'd like to hear your reflections on that and, and, and whether or not you think that's going to change the outcomes this time, because it, it seems like they are being framed a whole lot less like we're not going to work for your corporations and fight in your wars and a whole lot more like we are going to be better workers <laughs> in the corporations and better entrepreneurs. And, you know, it, it, there's something here that feels that it is being framed as much more of a tool in an innovative society. It's like much more, it has become aligned with neoliberalism as opposed to <laughs> opposed yeah, to it in a way that I find fascinating. Yeah, I mean, there's some, I see some of that. I talk to a lot of these tech people and they're very, they're very involved in psychedelics. Uh, they come at it, you know, via Burning Man and the, that whole utopian strain in, in the tech community, which we've all learned to be so skeptical of. Um, but, uh, and microdosing certainly does seem like an effort to translate what had been a very disruptive technology, LSD, into a productivity drug. <laughs> 
And it, it's to me, that seems kind of sad because these are drugs potentially of, of transformation being used to tweak, tweak uh, you know, the worker uh, and make better workers of it. Um, but I think that the level of disruption these drugs caused in the 60s was very much an artifact of that time. And the way I conceive it uh, in the book is the fact that we had this very anomalous situation where the young in this culture were undergoing a rite of passage that the, that the old didn't know anything about or understand. Normally rites of passage, whether it's a, uh, you know, a bar mitzvah or a vision quest or whatever it is, are organized by the elders to bring adolescents into the adult community. Here, though, the, the kids had invented their own rite of passage with a little help from Timothy Leary. And they were ending up in this country of the mind that adults found completely bewildering. And it led to this enormous generation gap. I mean, a, a, you know, changes in, in, in everything from uh, dress and music to sexual mores and, and uh, uh, food. And, you know, across the board, young people wanted to have a different culture than old people. And that was very threatening to everybody. I think we've grown up a lot, and, and a lot of the people in charge now um, have taken psychedelics, so they're not as likely to find them as disruptive uh, as people did in the 60s. Um, I don't think that makes them less good uh, or less valuable. Um, I think that there are ways to use them that could be transformative. Um, and we don't talk about it this way, and it's a little hard to, but you know, if you think of two of the biggest problems that confront us, as a, as a culture today, one is the environmental crisis, or this is what I would say are the two most, uh, and the other is tribalism in its various uh, modes, both of which are kind of egocentric ways of looking at the world. Um, you, uh, If you see the environment, if you see nature as a resource, as an object to use, and you see the other as foreign and to be defeated, um, you know, this is exactly the kind of consciousness that psychedelics erodes in a salutary way. And I don't know how you treat a whole culture. I mean, how many people do you have to trip uh, before you see changes in the values of a culture? And I don't think we have a model for prescribing a drug to a whole culture. We're not going to put it in the water. That's the sense in which I think they talk to the zeitgeist right now, that this lack of connection that has given us the environmental crisis, that has given us tribalism, and it really is this failure of imagination that there are other subjectivities uh, that, you, that you're more alike than not like, and that goes for plants and animals and other people, people of other races and other religions. These barriers are really what's afflicting us, and I think it's very curious that this drug happens to go to work on those barriers. I don't know where you take that, but that's the sense in which I, I find it uh, speaks to the zeitgeist right now. When you say, when you call it a drug, there is a way in which there is a branching, you write about this in the book early on, between how you could have used this and how people began to use it. And there's an approach to this where it's guided and it, it happens in a context and with someone who knows what they're doing and as a, as a therapeutic tool almost. And then there's a version of it where you use it the way you use alcohol or MDMA mm -hmm. or, or all kinds of other things where you take it and, you know, with your friends and have fun on a Friday night. And one of the things that has struck me about this is that if it's going to come back into the culture in the way you're talking about, and particularly for the reasons you're talking about, there's almost going to have to be a rediscovery of that other tradition, that tradition of guiding and, and seeing this is something mm. that has to be done in a controlled circumstance with an end in mind. But we sort of just sweep it in as, you know, 
one of many recreational drugs, which we think of as recreational, which these I think often are not. There's something else. And I'm just curious if you think that is possible or if the entire um, way this will come back is that people will just use it on their own because that'll be the easiest thing to do. Well, I think that's really a concern. I mean, I think that the, that the problem with the 60s use of LSD, if, if we want to call it a problem because it led to such a powerful backlash, was that we didn't have a container for these drugs, for these chemicals. And that if you look at the long history, you go back to the ancient Greeks who had their psychedelic ceremonies or the traditional cultures in, in either the New World or the Old World, there were always elders. There was always a set of rituals and ceremony because people understood how powerful these, these chemicals were and that people could get into trouble on them. And um, so I think, you know, when the drug, drugs entered the West in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, we didn't really have any context to put them in. And, and so people did just administer to them and people in, you know, fluorescent lit white hospital rooms and they had bad experiences. And it took a while to learn that, well, you have to create a good set and setting here. And I think, you know, the shamanic context doesn't really feel, fit our culture very well. We're more comfortable with shamans in white coats called doctors, and that's not quite right for the psychedelic experience either. So we're going to have to, and I think this is some of the most interesting cultural work that needs to be done around this, we're going to have to create the right rituals, the right ceremonies in which to use these drugs. It's not to say that people using them recreationally don't get value, um, don't benefit, haven't learned important things. I, you know, I have an, un, there's an unguided trip I took in this, in this book also that was incredibly valuable to me. But it is a higher risk venture and that people can get into psychological trouble and you diminish the chance of that with guides. Um, so I really emphasize that as, um, and unfortunately that's not legal right now. Um, but I look forward to a day where it might be and we would go to our, you know, mental health spas and uh, could have an experience like this. And, uh, you know, in a, in a very carefully organized way where we knew exactly what we were getting and, and somebody who knew the territory was by our side the whole time. You know, I think that that, that could be very valuable for a lot of people. The medicalization has value also, though, because it means that people could have access to it on their health insurance and, and that we, not, we don't limit this experience to the wealthy. Anyway, that's the work that needs to be done now is assuming that these phase three trials uh, are successful. Okay, now how do, we, how do we work this into our society? It's not going to be the way we did it with SSRIs. Um, it's not going to be the way we did it in the 60s where you just take a pill and go to a concert. We're going to need to invent a, a cultural form. And um, I don't know about you, but that's, that's exciting when that work uh, is, in, is ahead of us. We always end this podcast by asking the guests for, for book recommendations. Beyond How to Change Your Mind, which everyone should read, is there anything you read along the way here that you would recommend to the audience? Any books that you found here that changed the way you thought that, that you think should have a wider, should, should be seen more widely? Well, Aldous Huxley's book, uh, Doors of Perception, is still worth reading. It's kind of the best introduction to what the experience is like. And I learned a lot about describing the experience from him. And then there's another book called Miserable Miracle, which is the opposite of Huxley. It's by a, a French poet and artist named Henri Michaud, who had a mescaline experience the exact same year as uh, Huxley and described it in a completely different way. To read those two books is to get a good sense of the two poles on how to describe it. The most exciting book I've read recently is a book that's not exactly related, except insofar as evolution is implicated in this work, and that is The Evolution of Beauty by Richard Prum. And it's the most interesting 
piece on uh, on evolution that I've read and, and uh, sexual selection. It's mostly about birds. There's nothing on psychedelics, but I don't know why it popped into my head, but it's a very exciting book. Michael Pollan, thank you so much. Ezra, thank you. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you to, to Michael for being here. Thank you to Topher Ruth for helping to produce this episode out at Berkeley, where I've been recording. Thank you to my producer at Vox, Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, podcast network production, network podcast production. We are produced by Vox Media, and I will see you next week.